0: Hi everyone, welcome to Better Hiring, a podcast by Workable. As a marketing manager at Workable, if there was one thing I had to choose as my absolute favorite part of my job, it would be learning from the folks who are challenging the status quo and moving the recruitment industry forward. That's why we're here today. This podcast is a space for the leaders who are driving this progress to share their real, honest experiences in overcoming challenges and moving the hiring industry forward. And of course, to bring you the latest tips, trends, and strategies to help you find a path to better hiring. In this episode, you'll hear from Ryan Malone, CEO of Smartbug Media. Even though the surge in remote work is no longer quite as fresh, the world is still rapidly moving towards remote work as a permanent solution. So workable strategic content manager, Keith McKenzie got in touch with Ryan, who has over a decade of experience as a CEO of a fully remote company. In this episode, we're going to learn the method behind the madness. Let's jump in.
1: Thank you for joining me on this. I'm doing a lot of content workable around um, like, um, what businesses are doing in uh, doing this real time, and just what businesses are doing in general, uh, transitioning into a remote environment. You talked about that at the webinar a bit. I know that you are a remote-first organization, and you've been doing that since day one, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I would love to learn about that, talking about that for a bit. And then I would also like to talk about, um, you know, managing your business through this uncertain time. What are the signs that you're looking out for, the sign of a knit that's kind of coming along in, the, in terms of the economy, first sign of that, and what you would do to proactively plan for that upcoming crisis and whatnot. So it's more of a loose conversation about both those major themes. All right, so why don't we start with uh, your own own, uh, company, SmartBug. I guess what's really interesting to me is that you, uh, you've already been remote. You're already remote, so that's already easy to do. That's no transition for you, really, in terms of this remote-first environment that we're all in now. But I do know that uh, there must have been some point at the very beginning where you decided to go remote or something happened that made you go in that direction, chicken and the egg. How did all that happen in the first place? Yeah,
2: yeah um, that's a really good question. Most people don't ask that. So um, when I was 17, my dad passed away. And he he worked he worked so hard to – he traveled a fair amount. He was in aerospace in, uh, in, like, quality assurance. And so he traveled a fair amount. But he was always present at, like, 95% of the things that I did. He coached our sports teams. He, you know, was at all of these things. And so um, – as I went through my career, I, there, you know, pe- and stuff happens in life, right? Like family members get sick and things happen. It's just the normal ebb and flow of life. And so when I was starting SmartBug, I I realized that I didn't want to, I, I just got married. I hadn't had kids yet. I realized that I didn't want to be the, the dad who never saw his kids grow up because I'm always at the office. And I knew that being the CEO of a company that I had, large aspirations for um, that I should expect to put in a fair amount of time and I didn't want to put it away from my family. At the same time, um, I knew that having an office and then if you're the CEO of a company and you parachute in once a month to make a decision about which you have no information, you have no camaraderie with your team, you've never gone to war with any of them and like nobody wants to work for that person. That's not a leader in my opinion. So at the time, the the only way that I could, you know, be there for my kids and be there for my company was to be remote. It was the only solution to our problem. Um, At the time, you know, everybody thought we were silly. Um, I remember um, people at like partners of ours and larger companies who are now um, you know, remote, super remote evangelists and stuff like that, telling me that it would never work at a company past 10 people. And then when we got to 10, I would send them a note and say, we're at 10 and things are going great. And they'd be like, oh, well, it won't remark past 20. And so that whole thing ended. until finally, I got a note from one of them saying that um, they now recommended um, partners go remote. So so that was kind of the impetus for I think we can do this. Um, the the hypothesis that we were trying to build was that I think that there's an unwritten rule when you hire somebody. And, it, and the part that always gets talked about is if you were a candidate at SmartBug, we would always talk about what value you're going to bring to the company and the fiduciary responsibility you have to protect the company's brand and But nobody ever talks about the role of the company in protecting the employee's brand or the fact that when somebody takes a job somewhere that there's an opportunity cost of them not taking it somewhere else. And so um, we felt like if we could create a challenging work environment where people came to work with, people that they had this deep intellectual respect for, it doesn't mean that they're gonna be best friends. Um, They may not even like each other, but they should come to work saying, I work with smart people who've got my back every day. Um, But at the same time, make room for the things that matter in their life, which are memories. And the truth is, is you and I will not remember this phone call when we're older, but you'll remember whatever you do this week or this weekend with the people that you care about. So we felt like if we had an all remote model that we could get better talent faster, we could um, have people work at our company in a really challenging way with really smart peers, and at the same time, give them the flexibility and freedom to have a great career and go create memories in their life, which at the end of the day is what matters to us. And that we could do both. And so we went off to do that like 10 years ago, um, despite all the the heretics that didn't think it would work. And and we found a lot of people in our tribe that felt the same way. And so that's kind of where we're at today. And we've got 80, what, 83 people that are all remote at this point.
1: Yeah, so a, it sounds like we see a, a lot of the... And business is on work
2: life balance. Work life integration, because I think work life balance assumes that you turn off things at five o'clock and there's some kind of schedule in which work isn't a big part of your life. Work life integration, in my opinion, is more, for example, um, it's that you can do both. So, for example, let's assume that I want to run a triathlon. I would never do that, but let's just for the sake of an example. <laughs> um and and my triathlon team trains at three o'clock on Tuesdays in a work-life balance environment where I'm nine to five because I have work-life balance I wouldn't be able to participate in that because the expectation is that the company wants you there until five those are business hours in work-life integration the the employee makes a decision to say you know what like I'm going to schedule in three to six every Tuesday for my training. And I know that, um, and I'm going to, in fact, we encourage people to schedule the things that matter in their life first. So like schedule, you know, I pick up my kids every day from the bus at three. I train for a triathlon or whatever, and then make your life decisions after that. So you may say, I want to train for a triathlon at three. And that just may mean that you've made a conscious decision as an adult to, to do maybe the admin part of your work Saturday morning from 8 to 10 while you're having a cup of coffee. To me, that's not work-life balance. That's integrating your work in your life in such a way that you can win at both. And I think that there's a, a difference.
1: Okay. So it's more about the flexibility and uh, uh, giving your colleagues and your employees the, the power to decide uh, their own schedule and kind of work
2: because there's very, if you think about it, and even in your role, right, as a, as a journalist, there's very little probably of your work life that needs to be done at a certain time you know, with other people in the room, there's a lot of your work that probably like this call needs to happen at work hours, because you and I probably scheduled it at work hours. But you may write this article on Sunday when it's sunny outside, and you're sitting on your balcony, because that's the time that you do the best type of work at that time. And we feel like people who are, um who are kind of, you know, sharp and driven, and and kind of are pointed in the direction that they want to go, will take advantage of that and, and kind of, um, you know, design their work schedule in such a way that they do the best work at the right time and that they have time for the things that matter at the right time. And there's so much time in a week that you should be able to do both.
1: Okay, and what would you say to a, um, a company who said, But, you know, a lot of people's workouts are 9 to 5, and I need most of my clients are 9 to 5, and I need my people on the clock, 9 to 5, that kind of stuff. What would you say to them?
2: That example comes about actually when someone's new to remote. In fact, there was an example of someone here who, when you talk to them, they were like, I'm really stressed out with this remote stuff. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, I just feel like that I need to be at my desk all the time case a client calls nine to five. And I'm like, okay, so what was it like when you worked in-house at an office? I'm like, what happened if a client called? He's like, well, they would leave a voicemail message. I'm like, okay, well, when would you call them back? He's like, when I got back to my desk. I'm like, what if they called you at 4.30 and you weren't at your desk or you had to leave early that day? He's like, I'd call them tomorrow. So what's the difference? So as long as you're available for your clients and you're available for your team, then what, you know, when, why does the rest of it matter? And I would tell people that a lot of it is like this, um, you know, I think a lot of people have this inner distrust or like, it's a, it's not really distrust. It's more like a fear that maybe something's not getting done. And this idea that if you're in the office and I see you sitting there, that act- that actually means that you're doing something when the truth is like, it's the person that does something great. They may be sitting in the office playing on Facebook and it your whole theory is shot. I've always found that if you hire really good people and you put them through a good vetting process, you don't have to worry that they're going to do their stuff. And you don't have to worry that they're going to be there for their clients. And you don't have to worry that they're going to be there for their peers because their teammate knows really quickly if they're not getting their things done and their clients know really quickly if they're not getting their things done. And whether you're on, you know, you're involved in manufacturing or engineering or everybody, everybody has a customer and everybody's a vendor. In a relationship, and your customer and your vendor will always know if you're missing something. So, I would just let it go. In fact, I um, you know, an example of where that fear kind of comes out is uh, I'm involved in this master's group for agencies, and one of the agency partners was saying how he was thinking about installing some software on, and webcams on people's computers so that it would take a picture like every three minutes of like what they're looking at to see if they were at their desk. And I I almost like fell off my chair because I was like, first of all, and it would take a picture of their screen. I'm like, you just put this person through how many interviews? And you said, I trust you enough to be a valuable asset to my team, yet you don't trust them to do their stuff. And I think one of the cool things that, I mean, the, the COVID stuff is obviously really unfortunate, but If you look at, you know, there's a silver lining sometimes in everything. It forces, I think, a lot of managers and companies who have this underlying fear that's just based on they don't like change. It forces them to realize that, you know what? People can, they do just as good as stuff and they're just as passionate about their work. They just happen to be on a video or they happen to be in their pajamas or their kid might be running in the background. But you hired a passionate person. It really doesn't matter where they're at unless they physically need to touch something and then, you
1: know, that's different. But. So a, it has a lot to do with the vetting process and um, assessing the candidates and having the right ones that you know will crush it every day, no matter what where they are or uh, how they're doing it. In not matter. you know about the, uh, the results-based uh, approach when you say, just show me the results and I know you're doing a good job. That's one end of it. But what you're saying is, A part of it's also vetting, making sure you're getting the right people, and making Uh sure they're properly trained and motivated. So that's your part of the play.
2: Yeah, there's, you know, I think um, what we've found is that there's two, like you have your normal job interview process, right? Of the people that we've hired here, there's been two people that I've hired like in the history of our company where I met them before we hired them. So everybody else has been on video. And way back in the day, it was like a phone call. So it was like a huge leap of faith. But what we found is that outside of the normal, are you qualified? You know, do you have the right skill set? Do you pass whatever tests you need to pass to get in here is there's two things that we found that make for a successful remote employee. And we are by no means perfect. Like we're still trying to figure this out because it's really hard, right? Like you could put on your game face and, and say you love remote and be this dynamic person and talk to me about autonomy and how you plan your schedule. But at the end of the day, if you do it for two weeks, you might be like, oh man, I really, I need some friends. So what we look for are two things. The first thing that we look for is we try to figure out where, the, where that person's like social energy comes from. Um, and so what we found is that if if you go to work and you and you go to work with the same people for lunch every day, and then you go to happy hour with those same people, and and you have like a crew that you're constantly with at work, and then you go remote, they're taking something from you, and so you have this void, which is problematic. If you're one of those people, and during the interview process, when you say when when you know when's the best time for you to work, like how, when do you really? He's, oh, I just I love coming in in the morning early because nobody's there, or I love staying late because nobody's there. And when I can shut my door and there's no meetings and like, I really love that because I can get my, then you're like, okay, they, they'll appreciate it. So they gain something. So it's like this, I, I lose something versus I gain a freedom. And so we really try to find the people that um, aren't going to lose something when they go remote, but are looking for remote as a way to like get rid of all of the distraction. The second one I think that that matters quite a bit is resiliency because I think it's really common in work, right? You have something bad happens or something that frustrates you happens. So you don't just sit there. Most people don't just sit there and fluff it off. I mean, some people do. Some people will get up and they'll want to go talk to somebody or they'll go for a walk or they'll go to the coffee room. And, um, and so they're looking for this outlet to try to like, you know, blow off whatever issue happened to them. And so in a remote environment, you don't really have that option. So you have to, we just find that we have to find people that have, you know, handled some adversity and, you know, are resilient people and can, um, you know, understand, especially like in an agency or a professional services or consulting environment where you can plan your day the best that you want, but maybe a client emergency comes up that you need to move stuff around. And so, you know, that resiliency of understanding that, hey, I've got a certain amount of time during the day. My plan is X, but it may be that my plan's y by noon because something more important came out, and I'm okay with that because I got the most that I could get done in a normal day, and the other stuff pushed off, and I made that just that that like bargain in my head that you know I'm going exchange this for that, and it's no big deal. Um, I think that resiliency goes a long way if you're a remote worker
1: okay, how do you uh, identify that resilience but you' are interviewing
2: huge I I actually just ask them if they think they're resilient and we talk about examples of why they're resilient and usually when the examples are like well you know I didn't have enough to do on a certain project I'll ask them again for a different example and sometimes that part of the interview might take 20 minutes because um, it's not a question I think that people uh, are used to asking you know they're used to like give me an example of when you had a challenging project and what you did about it that isn't a deep enough question for me in terms about like are you it could be that you you know were an athlete it could be that you worked at a company where you were under-resourced constantly and you had to be scrappy it could be that you know you had some situation that required you in your personal life to do something outstanding. Um, and so, you know, I think that if you kind of fish around for adversity and resiliency and stuff, you find people that have metal and metal, I think, goes a long way in a remote workforce. Now, the benefits of remote, like in terms of political culture type stuff is you don't have in any company, right? There is sometimes animosity between one employee and another um, for whatever reason. Uh, in a remote company, you never see that, per, you know, one person that's always in the boss's office at three o'clock and you see them through the window and they're laughing and having a great time. And everybody's like wondering, you know, what's going on and all that. You just don't have that at a remote company. And so a lot of the issues of the interteen dynamics are kind of, uh, are muffled, like the negative ones, but the positive ones about people trying to help each other and people like creating tribes of, you know, different interests and those things those are really strong because that's what keeps a remote team together. So there's a lot of things that once you get into it um, that you don't have to deal with. You don't have to deal with all the, um, you know, kind of office romance junk because it's like not possible really. So um, so there, is, there are some things that from an HR perspective you don't really have to focus on and you can just focus on some of the positivity of culture if you find the right people.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, you know, moving the elements of toxic work environment there's not much opportunity for that to happen when everybody's working remotely it's very interesting
2: yeah yeah and if somebody if somebody is you know annoying to you we don't it's weird we don't have that problem you know we have you know we hear like frequently when people come here from in-house that they have tighter relationships here than they had at when they were at in-house and i think it's because like You have a lot of people who are, you know, want to make connections with people, and they're able to find their groups. Like, if I'm at a, you know, 100-person company, I'm probably not going to interact with, if I'm in marketing, I'm not going to interact with finance. I may not interact with engineering. They all have their little fiefdoms. If I'm at a remote company, the common intersection between the two is that we all like reality TV, or we're all coffee aficionados, or we're all, you know, basketball fans. And so when we do onboarding, we have everybody do a get-to-know-you call, which is just a 20-minute call. The only rule is you can't talk about work, and they do it with every employee. And the whole purpose of that thing is to let people find their tribes and the other people that are interested and have commonalities so that when they you know, get into our, our Zoom, which we use Zoom instead of Slack, I think we're the, probably the only people on earth that do that for messaging, but that they have their groups that they are part of. And now they have multiple tribes that – you know have the same interest and the commonality is that interest not the department they work for which is what's common in an in-house environment
1: it's very cool yeah we, we've done something like that a couple now but the whole remote thing started somebody set up a channel about food basically sharing what you're cooking at home you know and people are sharing photos of their you know yeah. baked items the banana bread and stews and sharing recipes and people are loving it, you know. I, yeah. can, I can answer them for ideas. Mine would just be tacos. <laughs> <laughs> that's tacos. great, yeah. Okay, that's great. It's really uh, really cool insights here. Uh, I'm going to push the conversation over to business continuity and survival mm-hmm. in, in these kind of weird, uncertain times. When I think about the math, going back 12 years, I guess you were just getting started right in the middle of that economic crisis What right, right around then.
2: We were man, we were tiny. So um, when I originally started SmartBug, it wasn't for an agency. It was because I wrote a book. My mom, uh, my mom was sick, and I um, she was going through senior care. And I wrote a book to help families transition their their okay. uh, families. And so, so I caught the tail end of that like agency wise. But, you know, a lesson earlier in my career, I worked in consulting and one of the partners at the firm said something to me that was really interesting. One of them was sort of a, uh, well, he said two things. Uh, One of them was, I haven't seen my wife in about a month. And I was like, okay, well, I don't want to be in this, in this industry anymore. And then the second thing that he said was, you know, something to the effect of, you know, beware the naive marketer who focuses on one industry. And his point was basically that in marketing, everybody tells you to be the master of one industry, to specialize so that you have um, deep, deep knowledge of certain things. And while I think there's some merit to that, I think that there's also merit in taking lessons that you learn from one industry and applying them to other industries. Like a lot of the digital media tactics that were created, you know, in the early days of online marketing were not created by marketers. They were created by video people. And so, um you know what we did really early was where all of the agencies were picking their markets. They were the hVAC marketing agency or they were you know marketing agencies for dentists, or they were whatever. My background was technology marketing so and I had this experience with my mom in healthcare, and um I was by definition a professional services company, so we said, well, for us, like working with other businesses to help them." become stronger businesses was of interest to us. And we have these three or four different verticals that we're passionate about and that we like. So I don't really want to specialize in one. I want to, I want to be really good at one or two or three or four and be able to take the, the insights that I learned from one and say, how does this apply to this other one? And so we've done that from the very beginning and um, especially like in the inbound agency beginning, you know, in, in our industry being like HubSpot partners and stuff, they really pushed people to focus on industries early and we just didn't feel like that that was the best approach. And that's been beneficial to us because, you know, we probably have, um, there's probably like seven or eight, you know, verticals that we spend time in we don't spend time in consumer stuff. So um, we find that the closer you are kind of to the source of finance, the safer you are. And consumer goods is way down at the bottom end of that. And so that's the one that always gets hurt. So, um, so we stay B2B predominantly um, and uh, in healthcare, professional services, manufacturing and and, um, and technology companies. And that's been good in this particular case, because if you look at some companies where they're just decimated, if they were travel agencies or, or tra- you know, digital marketing for travel or hospitality or tourism or something like that, like we've managed to, sure, you know, there's some softness and everybody's going through it. And if they tell you they aren't, they're crazy. Um, but at the same time, um, we haven't seen nearly as much softness as other people because we diversified rather than specialized. And I think that since we've done that in the beginning, it's given us a bit of a leg up. Okay, so that's, what, uh, that's a good survival tactic. Uh,
1: when you uh, when you have seen some fall off in terms of business, uh, you probably, what do you anticipate coming? How do you anticipate the length of the downturn, the peak of it? Uh, How do you plan for the end of it? How do you plan for getting through it? Apart from just diversifying,
2: yeah. So um, you know, there's I think a lot of companies will look at different models. So if you look at um, one model, is to look at 2008 and see what happened to advertising spending and things like that. And it, you know, depending on how you measure it, you've seen like you know 25, 30 percent plus or minus type statistics. So you say, okay, well, you know, if that were to happen, what part of advertising is it? A lot of times it's the paid media part that goes away pay-per-click and things like that. So you say, okay, well, that part of my business is probably at risk. So how do I um, make sure that I'm staffed appropriately uh, to do that? The other side is, you know, we've always kind of picked, picked partners that were, I think, our customers that I think were a little bit larger. So they were a bit more resilient. We've, um, you know, kind of stayed away from like super small companies, because they, are, they aren't they are as resilient in situations like this. So that, that's kind of like the foundation. But um, in terms of how do you actually know, you look at 2008, and there was another one that was in 2012. And you kind of try to model to see what happens. And then once you're done with your model, and you feel pretty good about yourself, you say, well, this has never happened before. So I don't know if either of these are right. And, um, you know, I think that You know, we have always focused on like, uh, we think of ourselves as a manufacturing company that manufactures creative. So every system that we do is like step, 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 step. And then there's this kind of ambiguous step for creative. And then it continues on this, you know, manufacturing line. And that just came from where I came in technology marketing. So that enables us to um, you know from a profitability perspective, I think be um, a bit stronger than a lot of agencies are that are are not as focused on that um, if you look at industry averages and um, I think you know having been in that in that market you know understanding that in situations like this cash is king, and so you know making sure that you're budgeting things for reserves and stuff like that will help you weather some of the storm but i don 't think anybody i'd be to be honest i don 't think anybody really knows you know, how long it's going to last. What we hear from, you know, the majority of customers is, you know, 90 days is what they're looking at. And so I think probably one of the areas, one of the reasons of uh, benefits of the diversification is when we talk to customers across all different industries and they're like, well, how long are you forecasting it to last? It looks that, you know, they're in like the 60 to 90 day range, but nobody really knows because especially if you look at the news, you know, the the so-called peak keeps moving out. It seems like it's always two weeks ahead of where we're at today. So nobody really knows, you know, how it's going to do that or what the trailing, you know, economic impact is. And I think it's, um, it's probably at least a quarter before people start getting back into the swing of things. But then after that, you know, who knows, like how, how all that matriculates down, you know, to some of the businesses that you work for.
1: So something like you say is kind of a quarter by quarter base. If people are saying sixty, ninety 90 days, if that's what you're hearing a lot from customers, basically let's get through this quarter and hopefully by the end of the quarter, something might change and we can, yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah.
2: yeah. And there's, you know, I think in, in, in periods like this, I think um, it's really important to be elegant and gracious. And so um you know, we we look at our, because we've always done this remote thing, we've had a really tight relationship with our clients. You know, we, you know, we like we, they share their kids online, you know, like our, my kid talks to a client's kid, they happen to be there, you know, that's like, so we have a pretty tight relationship. And I think in times like these, like you have to understand, like, how do you get through it together? It's not about like, oh, I have this vendor that can't pay, or I have this vendor that whatever, but you know, if we're all making these bets together and you have this long relationship, is there a way that we can continue to help you out of this? And maybe you just defer payments for a little bit. Like the, it's not the end of the world. Maybe you downsize things. And I think being, you know, in these environments, you have to kind of be flexible and you have to be elegant in the way that you you handle them. Because at the end of the day, the way that you treat the people that matter to you during situations like this, Uh, is that's what they're going to remember when those situations end and the clients that, you know, I've heard, you know, some horror stories of agencies who are like, well, I know you can't do this. So, you know, we're going to terminate your contract because of whatever. And they're just so rigid. Doesn't mean you have to do everything for free, but they're so rigid about, you know, maybe you just defer a payment for 30 days. Maybe, you know, for two months you do something less. Maybe you help them with something that your contract isn't for, but they need help with. Maybe you show them, Maybe you use your contract one month not to market because their target audience is having a really hard time, but you show them how to be remote so that they can operate better. I think those types of situations are what creates stronger relationships in this. And so I think if you're you know, cautious of cash just when things are good and you diversify and you... You know, you do put some models together to get a feeling for what things look like. And you're gracious with your customers that if you can get through all that, you'll finish really strong because you'll have such tight loyalty with the people that are coming back online that I think it benefits. It's just you know, nobody knows if that's three months or nine months or.
1: Yeah, this—that's the yeah, the common thing I'm getting. The common theme I'm getting through all of this is that uh, it's about relationships. Your relationship with your clients, your relationship with your employees, and all that. Just kind of nurture that because we're basically all humans. We're yeah. all sort of. this free together and kind of have to survive it together we can help each other out that kind of thing
2: i think the one thing i would probably add on the remote piece is um and it's ties to both is um in a remote environment you have to be more transparent because you can't really like it's harder to call an all-hands meeting for example you can't just grab everybody at nine um, cause you're in different time zones and people don't know what they don't know. So you don't, uh, you don't see somebody in a coffee room. So like if I were to say, Hey, like, where's that deliverable that you owe me? Um, that would be the first interaction that I have with you today, as opposed to the interaction that I would have had with you in the break room, grabbing a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, that creates like social capital so that when I say, Hey, where's that thing that you owe me, you don't look at it as like, here's this guy that came out of nowhere and asked me, you know, for this, this issue. So I think in these particular times, what we've found just as a company is that you just have to be really transparent. You have to say, "Hey guys, this is this is um, what we're going through as a company, regardless of COVID or anything else. This is our strategy. This is why it's our strategy. These are the things that we're going to be working on this quarter and why." And treat them, you know, like they're part of your team rather than a than a remote working team. And you just have to work really hard at that because that creates a lot of trust. And so trust is what drives all that stuff and keeps all of the kind of in the shadows and in the instant messenger gossip down. So the more that you can communicate as a, as a leader in these situations, the, you know, the better off that you are from a culture standpoint and kind of the, you know, the, this is not an English word, intertwinedness of your team.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to hit subscribe wherever you are to stay up to date with our new episodes. And in the meantime, head on over to the Workable blog at resources.workable.com and check out our vast resource library. And if you're looking for a better way to hire, just reach out. We'd love to help.